Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, and it's a big day on Pop Pantheon. We are launching our Prince series today. I will explain more about that in a second, but man, I'm so excited about what we have coming for you guys. Before I get into that, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at DJ L O U I E X I V on Twitter and Instagram. Shop merch in our store at poppantheonpod.com. Join our Patreon where we are publishing at least three bonus episodes of the show per month at patreon.com slash poppantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. And of course, my queer pop party, Gorgeous Gorgeous, is having its second New York installment a week from this coming Saturday, September 16th at the Sultan Room in Bushwick. So I hope to see some of you guys at That Gorgeous Gorgeous in New York City. I can't wait for that. And also our next LA party will be September 29th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. Tickets for both of those parties are available in the show notes of this episode. So I hope I see some of you guys on the West and the East Coast installments of Gorgeous Gorgeous. Finally, if you missed last week's announcement, we are having our first live show. The show is called Pop Pantheon Live, Britney's Memoir, Music, and Legacy. It will be at the Crawford Family Auditorium in Pasadena, and it's being presented in conjunction with LAist. And we're going to be talking about Britney's memoir, and we're going to be talking about her music and her legacy, as the title imparts. And I have a series of great guests, including Jason King, Troy McKeady, and Kirby Johnson coming to join me for that discussion. Plus, we're going to be doing a special Britney installment of Gorgeous Gorgeous in the parking lot after the show. If you're on the West Coast, or or if you even want to make a little pilgrimage to the LA, great excuse to do so. Tickets will be available to Pop Pantheon Live in the show notes of this episode, and they're also available in our bios on social media. So lots of stuff coming up, lots of gorgeous gorgeouses, our first live show, etc. So this is a very exciting little moment for me and for us. And that extends into this week's episode, which will be the first of three new episodes we are doing on the musical legend and auteur Prince. This has been in the works for a long time. A lot of work and thought has gone into this series. And I know Russ and I are both brimming with excitement to bring this to you. Obviously, Prince is one of the most prolific, profound, fascinating, enigmatic, eccentric, impactful pop figures in history. It was a very overwhelming task for us to try to figure out how we were going to approach this topic. But I think we've done the best we can to synthesize this man's epic discography and career into three episodes, the first of which obviously is out today and will cover his early life through his big pop breakthrough with his fifth album, 1982's 1999. Next week's episode will cover his pop peak with 1984's film and album Purple Rain. Some of you might have heard of it all the way through 1989's Batman soundtrack. And then the third episode will cover all of his work through the 1990s, 2000s, all the way through his death in 2016, and obviously his Super Bowl performance, his legacy impact, etc., etc. I really don't have the words for what an experience this has been making these episodes. I've learned so much. I've come to so deeply appreciate and understand this man's work. I mean, I think Prince is somebody that we all know about. We know a lot about his hits, but there's just so much material to cover. He's such a rich text for anybody that's interested in pop. His influence is truly 
impossible to understate. We're going to learn so much through the series about Prince himself, but also about why pop music sounds and looks like it does today. And kind of like one of the best iterations in my mind of the way that pop can be both incredibly delicious and enjoyable in a centrist sense and also push our expectations, our boundaries, both in terms of how it sounds and what it can be about to pretty much the furthest extent possible while still maintaining its structure as mainstream pop. I just really can't speak highly enough of what an incredible experience this was, and I hope that it's an incredible experience for you guys to listen to. So without further ado, here is the first of our three new episodes on the man, the myth, the purple one himself, Prince. I don't know that I've ever been as intimidated by making this show as I was when we decided to do this Prince series. How do you even begin to convey the power, majesty, and depths of this man's career and work, as well as its influence on the shape of pop music and stardom? Prince is an entity unto himself, a one-man band man who, through a seemingly endless torrent of music, ranging from some of the most avant-garde pop ever produced to its most pleasurable centrist baubles, and over a career that spanned four decades, remade the genre and the very idea of being a pop star in his image. This was an artist of such boundless innate talent and keen instinct that, at least for a while there through the 1980s, he was literally able to stretch the contours of the genre to his idiosyncratic whims and forever alter its course. And yet, there's this strange duality where we at once wouldn't have pop as we know it today without him. You hear and see him in every corner of the music and stars that came after him. While it's simultaneously abundantly clear that no one could ever deign to replicate his signature musical aesthetic, virtuosic excellence, the unpredictable twists and turns of his indelible discography and career, the norm detonating production, lyrical content, and aesthetic presentations, or the explosive X factor of his at once alien and consummately human presence. Often when I'm making the show, I'll note how a song or album brings to mind other music. With Prince, his work usually just sounds like Prince. How many other pop stars could you say that about? So conveying Prince's towering position in the pop pantheon is no small task. But over the next few episodes, we're going to do our very best to unpack the purple reign of one of the most important, fascinating, challenging, mind-bending figures of not just the history of pop music, but that our culture has ever produced. Prince Rogers Nelson was born in Minneapolis on June 7, 1958 to jazz singer Maddie Della and pianist and songwriter John Lewis Nelson, both members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. When his father split from his mother and moved out of the house, he left behind his piano, the first instrument Prince learned how to play. A musical wunderkind from the start, Prince wrote his first song, Funk Machine, at just seven years old. He also grew up during the counterculture movement of the 1960s, against the backdrop of great civil unrest in his hometown, as well as steeped in the powers that many musical genres from rock and roll to soul, R&B, funk, and jazz could play in a cultural shift. 
As a teen, he started his first band, Champagne, and got a job at a local recording studio as a piano player, soon filling in on guitar, bass, drums, and backup vocals as well. According to early reports, Prince learned to play as many as 26 instruments by his mid-teens, and on the weekends, he often stayed at the studio and slept on the floor. In the early 1970s, Minneapolis had a rich and innovative black music scene, one where genre barriers were gleefully flouted and friendly competition helped generate a series of highly influential acts. After playing in a number of local bands and becoming known for his virtuosic skills, maniacal work ethic, and attention to detail, Prince, then 17, produced a demo of solo material that he began shopping to several labels. Many expressed interest but refused to let him produce his own records until Warner Brothers offered him a six-figure, three-album record deal, which afforded him full creative control. In 1978, Prince released his debut album, For You, acting as a one-man studio band, singing all the vocal parts and playing every instrument himself. The record the record was an impressive showcase for the young talent, traversing numerous genres from disco to funk to rock, and featuring what would become his signature quivering falsetto and immediate and ever-present on-record sexuality. But the record produced only one minor hit, Soft and Wet, which peaked at number 20 on the Hot Soul Singles chart. His mainstream breakthrough came the next year with his self-titled sophomore effort, a set of songs which expanded upon the polyglot genre aesthetics and arresting presentation of sexuality of his debut, and produced the number 11 peaking disco hit, I Wanna Be Your Lover. Even at this early stage of his career, Prince had already begun to build the mythic mystique that would later come to define him as pop history's greatest enigma. He rarely granted interviews, and when he did, he mostly spoke to black publications and local reporters in Minneapolis. When it came to his own mythology, Prince was not a reliable narrator. When speaking to reporters, he gave vague, cloying answers to questions, and in some instances, outright lied about the details of his origin story, all of which created an air of mystery around the young upstart, even before he'd truly established himself as a hitmaker. And although he'd garnered interest, critical praise, and even a few hits with his first two albums, it was his seminal third release, 1980's Dirty Mind, which began to establish Prince at the vanguard of pop music's future. Dirty Mind is carnal and filthy, a truly eccentric celebration of sexual liberation that explicitly explores bisexuality, incest, and oral sex, cementing the lascivious and norm-challenging androgynous persona Prince would revel in for the next decade and beyond. Its spare musical palette, which played thrillingly fast and loose with genre genre confines warping new wave R&B, funk, rock, soul, and dance music into its own singular entity, and contrasted spare electronic elements like drum machines and Prince's superlative multi-instrumentalism, is widely considered to have set the template for the next decade of pop music. At the same time, Prince began to develop a reputation as an electric, seductive live act, often performing in nothing more than heels and bikini bottoms. While it sold fewer copies than his debut, Dirty Mind was critically adored and helped establish Prince's reputation as a trend-setting musical auteur. Its best-performing single, a minimalist funk song celebrating liberation in the face of racism and prejudice called Uptown, cracked the top five on both the Hot Soul and Dance Club charts, but struggled to gain spins at radio due to its explicit themes and lyrics, and ultimately failed to cross over in the pop market.
Although not a commercial juggernaut, the sexual presentation of Dirty Mind made Prince a source of cultural debate and derision, and in a move that he would replicate again and again through the rest of his career, Prince savagely took ownership over that narrative on his next album, 1981's Controversy. Controversy itself continued to showcase Prince's penchant for sexually explicit lyrics on songs like Do Me Baby and political commentary on his plea to then-President Ronald Reagan, Ronnie, talk to Russia. The title track, released as the lead single, meanwhile, addressed the ramp speculation at the time about Prince's race, sexuality, and gender. Like its predecessor, Controversy was widely praised by critics but failed to produce any significant crossover hits. Around the same time, Prince began to branch out as a producer, crafting songs for his friends and collaborators in Minneapolis. He signed two local acts, the girl group Vanity Six and The Time, which featured future Janet Jackson collaborators Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Together with a few associated acts, those in Prince's orbit became known for the Minneapolis sound, a loose term which originated to describe his impact on the local music scene and largely defined by the sound he'd unlocked on Dirty Mind and Controversy. Prince, though, was dissatisfied by his lack of commercial success and for his next project, 1982's 1999, set out to synthesize his persona and the Minneapolis sound into something with broader appeal. His first album recorded with the backing of his band, eventually branded The Revolution. 1999 delivered on the promise Prince had built up with his first four records and served as a massive breakthrough into mainstream pop. Packed with cutting-edge synths and drum machines, including the Lynn LM1, which would become a signature part of his aesthetic, it's a record that both sounded like and explicitly explored the collision of technology and humanity. 1999 is packed with symphonic pop, rock, funk, and soul, contrasting a bold use of synthetic machines with live instruments and channeling Prince's all-consuming sexuality and political and social anxieties into irresistible pop choruses. Its title track and lead single, which established what would become a core Prince trope of partying and sex as a means of defying the specter of apocalyptic nuclear war, was Prince's first video to be played on MTV, making him, along with Michael Jackson, one of the first black stars of the music video era. But it was the second single, the sweeping, simmering, mid-tempo ode to desire and vulnerability, Little Red Corvette, that shot Prince into the top 10 of the Hot 100, peaking at number six. Nineteen ninety nine produced two more big hits, the Rockabilly homage Delirious, which peaked at number eight, and the title track, which got a second look after the success of Corvette and hit number twelve. The album went platinum within months of its release and was Prince's first to reach the top ten on the Billboard two hundred, eventually selling over four million copies in the US, being named one of the greatest records of all time by VH1 and Rolling Stone, and inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in two thousand and eight. The record also made Prince one of the premier superstars of the early nineteen eighties, equally celebrated by critics as he was embraced by pop audiences. He was, of course, just getting started. Here with me to discuss Prince's rise to pop stardom is the author of the upcoming book, Prince, Porn, and the Public Space, the University of Minnesota's Dr. Elliot H. Powell. All right, so I'm here with associate professor in the Department of American Studies at the University of Minnesota, Dr. Elliot Powell. Dr. Powell, welcome to Pop Pantheon. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited for this conversation. I'm so excited for this conversation. I mean, this is an artist that looms large, obviously, in the pop pantheon. And I find a lot of times when I'm getting into episodes about figures of this magnitude in pop history, there's this weird thing that I sort of hope these episodes address or I have as a personal goal for these episodes, which is I think when artists are as iconic as Prince is, in a way that iconic for lack of a better word, can sometimes obscure why as history transpires and as these things just become sort of baked in ideas of who's a legend and whatever, you just kind of go, yeah, Prince, that's a legend or Prince, that's one of the greatest musical innovators in the pop space in history. But what's been so fun for me getting to go back and listen to this stuff, listen to some of it for the first time, just on my own personal journey is, I think Prince is one of the rare artists in pop history where you listen to Prince's music and it's hard to really compare it to other things. You really hear it and you're kind of like, that just sounds like Prince. And that was there pretty early on in his music in a way that even for other big legends in the space like Madonna and other people where it's more easy to make comps, I feel like Prince is a musician and musical innovator and force unto himself and also obviously an innovator in so many other ways unto himself. So I'm hoping that in this conversation and with your insights, we can help begin to lay out the foundations of what made Prince Prince, what made him a legend, what made him such an innovative figure in pop history. This is going to be the first of a series of episodes where we're covering Prince and we're going to be getting into all the different eras and all the different sounds and looks and musicianship, the production, the singing, the racial politics, the sexuality, I mean, all of it in broad strokes just to help us get into this conversation that we're about to have over the course of these episodes. What is Prince's impact, legacy? What is it about him that makes him stand out or makes him special in pop history? Ooh, you asked me to kind of say that in a succinct manner, and I don't know if I can, but I will try. <laughs> okay, good. We could only ask you to do your best. Yeah. <laughs> I think there are levels to this. I think one of the reasons why Prince is such an iconic figure, why he has such importance, is really how he completely redefined popular music sonically in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. There's an argument that I talk about in my classrooms about how the Minneapolis sound, which Prince is very much central in the development, and some would say he is the innovator of that, that completely reshaped the sound of the 1980s, mm -hmm. full stop. And there's not really an argument against that. When we think about certain kinds of artists who emerge after Prince in the 1980s or emerge in the 1990s, who are still drawing in a 1980s sound, Prince is there. You can't erase him from that sound, even if his name wasn't actually listed. Sure. And so that becomes really, really important to know. A second thing that I think is really key is thinking about Prince as a technological kind of innovator when it comes to music, but also when it comes to music distribution here. Prince is one of the earliest to really think about how he might be able to use the internet as a way to get into touch with fans, as a way to communicate with fans, as a way to sell music. He's really innovative in that. Things that we kind of take for granted now, Prince becomes one of the earliest big name figures 
figures to really go down that path and open up that lane. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing about going down that path and opening up lanes is we're in a period now due to music streaming and how streaming services and how they're basically ripping off artists. Artists aren't getting compensated in the same kinds of ways. Yeah. And so we find artists like Taylor Swift. We find a number of artists who are rightfully saying that this is not okay. Mm -hmm. The way that artists are being paid royalties through streaming services, through deals with record labels, this cannot be anymore. That kind of fight that folks like Taylor are waging currently, Prince was waging and raging both mm-hmm. <laughs> in the 1990s with Warner Brothers. And Prince was also very critical of streaming yes. when it first emerged as well. So there's a way that Prince also as a music business mind also shapes popular music. So these are the things that I think are really key when we think about why Prince is, is really important. And then I think the last thing is really about how Now, Prince is someone who, for all the fame, for all the fortune, stayed in Minnesota, Mm. stayed in the Twin Cities area, and always embraced that, represented that, always talked about that in his lyrics, Mm. and always said it from a particular reference point of a Black man who grew up in Minneapolis. And I think that that's important in so many different ways. One, because as I think folks from the Midwest can attest, the Midwest is usually seen as a flyover region. Sure. And when we think about pop music icons, we tend to, even though they might be born in certain areas, because of the fame, because of the fortune, we kind of associate them with sort of New York City or LA, right? Sure. But Prince never let us forget about Minnesota. He never let us forget about Minneapolis. That's true. And he never let us forget also that he was a Black man and a Black man from this particular state, from this particular region, and from this particular city. Yeah. That was really important for him. And I think that's important for audiences that no matter the kind of fame that you might get, you don't have to actually leave home. And I I think that's an important statement to actually be made. Yeah, those are all things that definitely jumped out to me too. And you're making me think of the way that he was able to contain so many multitudes and contradictory ideas in this one vessel that somehow worked together and formed this very singular identity that's hard to compare to anything else. You talk about geographically, on the one hand, you have this proud Midwesterner, but at the same time, somebody that is one of the most enigmatic, gender-bending Black men in pop history. So those two things could seem in opposition to each other and yet feel equally essential to who Prince is. And then I was so taken also with what you're saying about the technological innovations, because one thing I was thinking about, especially listening to the music that we're going to be discussing during this first run of records for him, is the way that he sort of is a bridge figure in popular music production and history in terms of obviously being steeped in a lot of the stuff that came before him. It's very clear in his work. He understands rock history, funk history, R&B history, that's all there in the mix. And then also obviously these massive leaps forward in music production technology, the use of computers, the use of drum machines. He was able to synthesize the past, the present, and the future together in this way that feels incredibly singular to him. And in a way that I can really only think of a very small handful of artists where you can really say embodied that, at least in like a musical form. Prince is a linchpin in the broader history of the way that music sounds. And I think that that innovation and the way that we continue to reference him, it's almost like he's a genre of music unto himself. And speaking again about the Minneapolis thing, I think maybe that's a good jumping off point for us to talk a little bit about Prince's early life. I'm sure there's so much lore on Prince. You could probably go and do a full three-hour episode just talking about his early life before he ever recorded an album. What do we need to know about Prince's 
early life that helps us understand his pop stardom. Who is he? Who is he born to? And what are the elements of his early life that help inform the Prince legend as we know him today? That's a fantastic question. And that's something that I often spend a lot of time in my classes talking about. I spend a lot of time talking about Prince's early years because I think that there's a way we can draw a direct line from his upbringing, his early years, going into when he becomes this legendary figure. Mm -hmm. So Prince's born on June 7th in 1958. His father is John L. Nelson. His mother is Maddie Shaw. John Nelson was a jazz musician. He played piano. He had a band called the Prince Rogers Nelson Trio. <laughs> he named his son after his stage name. Mm -hmm. And so Prince is born Prince Rogers Nelson. And then Prince's mother, Maddie Shaw, was also a jazz singer who would sometimes perform in her then husband's band. And so Prince is a child of two Black jazz musicians. I think that matters because that means that you have music around you all of the time, right? So there was a piano at home. Prince was really interested in music. Prince had other family members, cousins, uncles who were also sort of musically inclined as well. So again, there's music happening all over. There's also music happening a lot in North Minneapolis, right. where Prince is raised. Also in this period of the 1950s and 1960s, there are soul and R&B acts like the Amazers, who are really popular in the Twin Cities. Cities. Baby, oh, how you abuse me without a warning. Certainly, I must cry. So, Prince is growing around this particular kind of culture here musically. And Prince is someone who initially really takes up piano. Prince has talked about this in interviews that the first song that he remembers playing is the theme from Batman, mm. right? The kind of 1960s TV campy show. And I always find that to be really remarkable. One, because Prince would later do the soundtrack of the Tim Burton 1989 film, Batman. Right. And then secondly, we have Prince engaging with camp, mm. which becomes something that we now associate with Prince and his play with gender and sexuality. So it's interesting and it's telling that the Batman theme becomes this first point for Prince as a way to kind of think about music. Mm. That also becomes the first song that he performs live <laughs> at a kind of elementary school showcase. Oh, wow. He plays a theme from Batman. And so Prince is someone who's very much in tune with pop culture. So that's what's happening, I think, musically that we can think about in those initial childhood years. But also Prince is born 1958. And by the time that we hit the 1960s, especially the mid to late 1960s, not only in a place like Minneapolis, but across the nation, there are a series of uprisings. We're talking about an era of civil rights. We're talking about an era of black power. Mm. And we're talking about an era of various sets of uprisings that are very much in response to systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And North Minneapolis isn't removed from that. So there are two sets of uprisings that happened in North Minneapolis, one in 1966 and one in 1967. Okay. I want to know, what do you do when a pregnant girl, a colored girl, is pushed down by a police officer, the detective, to serve, you understand, uh, what do you do when she's pushed down, she's kicked in the stomach, her baby dies? When did that happen? This happened last night. And I believe there's a law that there's a law, there has to be some law against it, or does it just pertain to the white? I mean, you know, I would really like to know, what do you do? You know, who do you blame? 
You, know, you, you can't blame the colored person because he didn't push her down and kick her in his stomach. The police were so ready and so sure that something was going to happen that it happened. How about last year? The same thing happened last year. Well, I have no comments on last year. I mean, you know, last year was last year. But there was nothing done about it, so this is what happened this year. And what's interesting about those sets of uprisings that, again, were very much in response to anti-Blackness, it needs to be stressed that these were youth-led sets of actions. The local government decides to invest in a kind of community center that was called The Way. And The Way is really important because it's a community center for Black youth in North Minneapolis. It was also a space of political organizing. So we have this community center that becomes a site of culture and politics for Black youth, like Prince, mm. who throughout his career has been someone who's very much invested in thinking about his music as a kind of sort of political tool here. Right. And so Prince is growing up in this particular environment. The Way becomes a space where Prince actually starts to play with various sets of instruments. He actually rehearses a lot in that particular space. But again, it's not only a cultural space, it's also a political space. So it speaks to the ways in which we might think about the intersections, the connections, between culture and politics that become really formative for Prince really in the 1980s and moving forward. Mm. So there's a way that that becomes cultivated in that particular space. The other thing that I will say about Prince and his childhood in North Minneapolis, this is also where Prince starts his first band. Mm. The band had a number of names before they settled on the name Grand Central. Mm -hmm. One of the first names, if not the first name, was Sex Machine. Mm -hmm. Fitting. Yes, fitting, right? <laughs> Prince is really hitting high school. He's probably a freshman around this period in high school. Mm. And so his best friend named Andre Anderson, mm. who now goes by Andre Simone, and Prince's cousin, Charles Smith, formed this band called Grand Central. Again, it was initially called Sex Machine. And these are boys in high school. And so like, I think they thought, oh, this would be funny. We'll call ourselves Sex Machine. Yeah. But I think what's also interesting about it is that it was also in response to the James Brown song, Sex Machine. But also Sly and the Family Stone also had a song called Sex Machine. And those are two important figures for Prince. Both James Brown and Sly Stone are very much architects of funk, but they also become these black male pop culture figures with crossover appeal who do black music, but again, have crossover appeal. And Sly Stone is someone who's thinking about funk and also thinking about rock and psychedelica. And that becomes really, really important. Right. And so again, what used to be called Sex Machine, and then they renamed it to Grand Central. And this is also important. Central was the high school that Prince went to. And the Grand of Grand Central is actually an allusion to Grand Funk Railroad, which was this rock and also somewhat rock and funk kind of band. And so this also speaks to Prince's influences, right? That Prince thinks about multiple sets of genres of music here. So there's a way that 
they're drawing on these influences, drawing on James Brown, drawing on Sly Stone, drawing on figures like Santana mm -hmm. and putting them together within one band. And so Grand Central becomes Prince's first real band and they're a fantastic band. They are booking gigs all across the Twin Cities, but they're not also the only band. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis are also part of this picture. This is a very special period that's happening here where in terms of Jimmy Jam, he had his own band. Terry Lewis had his own band. Everyone is kind of competing against one another here. Everyone is doing battle. The bands in North Minneapolis and South Minneapolis, wherever they could book gigs. Mm. But this is a very rich period because folks are really honing in their sets of crafts that would really be formative within their careers here. So can you imagine this period in the early to mid 1970s with a kind of early Prince, an early Andre Simone, an early Jimmy Jam, and very much an early kind of Terry Lewis. Morris Day ends up also joining Grand Central mm. as well later. Wow. And so there's this whole kind of thing about this period in the 1970s that is just beautiful because it's a set of Black folks in Minneapolis who are doing these multiple mixed genres. They're doing funk, they're doing R&B, they're doing soul, they're doing rock, they're doing whatever they want to. Some of them are also doing jazz at the same same time, it's this incredibly rich period. And so Prince gets really inspired by all of this. Mm. And Prince is really formative in this particular period. And we kind of reach a point where Prince is about to graduate high school and Charles leaves the band, or Charles might say that he was fired and probably was <laughs> fired to make room for Morris Day. But Charles mm. was also interested in other sets of things. And what we also have is that while Prince had Grand Central, other bands in the Twin Cities were also asking Prince to play with them. There's a guy named Peppy Willie who was married to Prince's cousin Chantal. Mm. Pepe was from New York and he was older than Prince, but Pepe also was someone who was a part of the music industry as well. Pepe was forming a band called 94 East in Minneapolis. Pepe is like, I'm going to start doing studio time and invited Prince to kind of play, to experience the studio with him. And that becomes Prince's first experience in studios, right? Prince had been doing gigs, doing live music, but had never actually been in the studio. And then there's another guy named Sonny Thompson, who ends up later in the 1990s being a part of Prince's new power generation band. Sonny was older than Prince. Sonny had this band called The Family. Sonny T was, in so many ways, I think, a local influence on Prince. Mm. Sonny T was someone who was a multi-instrumentalist and someone who sang in falsetto. Mm. And so there's a way that sort of locally, I think Prince looked to someone like Sonny T. And so Sonny T is doing studio sessions as well and invites Prince to play with him. And so really between Pepe and Sonny T, this is where Prince gets his first taste of what it means in the studio. That really informs how Prince is like, you know what, this is what I really need to do for my career. Mm. And so Prince goes from there and he meets people through this kind of studio experience. He meets this guy named Chris Moon, who had a studio in Minneapolis. And during one particular session where Prince was invited to play with this band, the band kind of takes a break and they do their own things. But Prince stays because, again, he's just really curious about the studio. And so Prince is picking up instruments, playing with things. And Chris Moon starts to kind of notice this. 
And Chris Moon is very surprised in a good way about how great Prince is sounding on all these other instruments, right? He's picking up the guitar and he'll shred a little bit and then he'll just put it down. Mm. And then he'll move to keys and then he'll just play the keys like nobody's business. Then they're like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on to someone else. Let me go play the drums. Let me go play the bass, right? And Chris Moon is like, oh, wow. Okay, this guy is like really, really good. And Chris Moon starts to get the gears turning in his mind and he's like, hey, it seems like you're really interested in the music industry. And Prince is like, yeah, I really am. Yeah. Chris Moon is someone who's a producer. He's an engineer. So Chris Moon is like, all right, so how about this? We kind of work on songs together. We can co-write some things. I can help you put together a demo. Mm. And so that becomes another piece of the puzzle. And so Prince and Chris Moon create a demo and it's pretty good. Yeah. As you can imagine. I can. Yeah. <laughs> And so Prince is like, I need a manager. Chris, could you be my manager? And Chris is like, that's not my thing, right? Mm. I can do these studio things. I'm not really the kind of management type. So Chris says, I know a guy named Owen Husney. Owen listens to the demo tape. He talks to Chris and he's like, okay, this band sounds great. And Chris says, it's not a band, it's one person. Mm. I'm so fascinated by the tapestry you just painted. First of all, about just the polyglot musical aesthetic that is obviously so integral to why we remember Prince is that his music is able to sort of draw in influences from the massive rock explosion of his childhood, the sound of the electric guitar, the protest anthems, the idea of counterculture, the idea of anti-war music. I mean, that all feels very important to him. You obviously are talking about funk, about James Brown, about Sly Stone about all of the different polyglot musical aesthetics that Prince and Minneapolis in general or Black artists in Minneapolis in general seem to be circling around. The two questions I want to ask you to help people sort of get a grip on this is what is it about this moment or this moment in Minneapolis or Prince himself that is allowing for this lack of boundaries around how we can put this stuff together? Why is this a space where that is happening so acutely in this moment? And then I just want to help people understand Prince as an artist, even in this early phase, what is making him stand out? What is making people gravitate towards him, whether it's Chris or Owen? What do you think they're seeing in Prince? I mean, obviously he's a virtuoso picking up 26 instruments as a child. What do you think it is about the circumstances of the moment that are kind of creating this polyglot musical aesthetic in Minneapolis? And what is jumping out to people about Prince even in this early time period before he's famous, do you think? That's a fantastic question. I mean, I think one of the things, and again, this is a a part of what's happening in the broader Minneapolis music scene at this particular moment in time, especially with Black youth, is that there's a way in which Prince and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and Andre and Morris mm -hmm. were noticing how within Minneapolis, within the Twin Cities, the Black musicians who were really good before them were being pigeonholed in one particular genre, right? Mm. Jazz musicians, all you can do is jazz and this is what we're going to kind of stick you to. Mm. Those who in R&B and soul music in Minneapolis face a similar kind of thing. And they face it also with segregated venues. They never really had a chance to to cross over because of the cultural and or kind of legal systems did not allow for local Black musicians in Minneapolis and St. Paul and the Twin Cities mm. to have a robust career here. The social movements of the 1960s forced that opening. Mm. And so what ends up also happening is that Prince and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and Andre and everyone said, you can't tell us 
what music we can and cannot play. If we only want to do soul music, let us only do soul music. But if we want to do rock, if we want to do funk, if we want to do classical, if we want to do whatever, we have the right to do that. And so when they are spending time listening to the radio, this is another kind of important part. Radio was very segregated in the 1970s, even before, but really, really in the 1970s, right? Where if you were a Black musician who played rock music, rock stations across the country really didn't play you, right? Really, Jimi Hendrix was the only figure. Right. They were like, okay, he's the one exception. But if you were a Black musician who did rock music, you would be heard on Black radio. You wouldn't be heard on white rock radio. Right. Because they would say, oh, you're a Black person. And even though you might do rock, you should be on the funk side. Mm. Prince is also noticing that as well. And so there's a refusal to disarticulate their interests in jazz and in funk and R&B and soul and rock. They want to kind of fuse those genres so that you can't actually place them within something. This becomes really crucial for Prince's later career. So that's what's, I think, happening culturally. And it's a self-conscious thing on their part. They're sort of busting out of these boxes as a sort of act of protest in their own conscious way. In some ways it's conscious, in some ways it's not. And I think in part because Black Radio in Minneapolis there were only two stations that didn't really, because of racism, um, didn't have strong signals. And so what Prince and his peers are listening to on the radio stations is mostly rock music. Mm. And so they're digging folks like Santana, right? They're digging folks like Joni Mitchell, mm -hmm. but they also can buy records. So they also are very much attuned to what's happening in funk as well. Mm. And when they could get into the black stations and when the signal came in, then they would hear all the new black music that's coming out of R&B, soul and funk. And they're growing up saying, we love all of this music and we want to be able to incorporate all of this music. So that's what's happening in terms of the artistry. And then I think what Owen is seeing in Prince and what Chris Moon is seeing in Prince is very much, as you already said, a virtuoso figure. But even when Prince was in Grand Central, even when Prince is playing in bands, they noted how at times Prince played those instruments better than the people in his band. Right. I was going to say when you were mentioning the other people in the band, I'm kind of impressed that Prince even let other people play instruments around him because it seems like, generally speaking, Prince liked to do all parts himself. I've talked to his cousin Charles Smith about this, and I'm pretty sure that Andre has also co-signed on this, is that the worst thing that you would want in a rehearsal is for Prince to stop the rehearsal and then teach you how you were supposed to play your part. <laughs> you know, it would just be this embarrassing thing where he would just kind of walk up to you and say, you need to play like this. Right. And then he would go back to his instrument then he would say okay no no no, you're still not doing it right so that would be the worst thing but that was true prince could just play everything and you have to imagine this is the 1970s so stop me if you've heard this kind of archetype before a black youth prodigy from the midwest who can play multiple instruments yeah. is a one-man band yeah. a guy named stevie wonder <laughs> I think they see that. And I think early on, initially, I think the pitch to record labels was that Prince could be the next Stevie Wonder. And then that completely got dropped because for a number of reasons, Prince, I think, didn't want to be associated in that way, didn't want to carry that particular burden. I didn't want to have to deal with that, for me at least, racist attitude that if there's some person who's like a one-man band, they have to be the next Stevie Wonder. They can't just be the next Prince, right? Right, right. And so I think Prince really wanted to leave that behind. But I think that was the kind of initial light bulb for people like Owen, for people like Chris, was really saying, this could be the next Stevie Wonder. This could be someone who could really, really make it big because he can sing really well. He can play all these instruments. 
instruments. And obviously also has this incredibly singular star quality, androgynous, completely enigmatic <laughs> personhood force of being that is abundantly clear from at least the earliest things that I was watching of him. He is Prince as we know him in many ways, way before anybody even knows who he is. He is very much this just singular, he said himself, he's not a woman, he's not a man, whatever. I mean, clearly Prince knows who he is, I get a sense, which is obviously a very important part of becoming a superstar is when you are so clear on who you are before anybody else believes or sees that. Prince embodies that to a T. Prince knew who he was, what he was bringing to the table, and what he wanted to do, at least in some nebulous form, very early on in this process, was my sense of it. It totally is. I mean, two things that he told Warner Brothers when they wanted to sign him. One, he told them, don't make me black. Mm. This goes back to something that I mentioned earlier. This was not the Prince didn't want to be seen as a black man. A lot of people misunderstand that statement. It's because at the time, you know, record labels had black departments where they had black artists and they put them in black departments. And those artists, no matter what genre they were in, were relegated to black radio stations. And so Prince, again, coming out of a space in Minneapolis, seeing the previous sets of musicians in jazz, like his father, who were doing soul and R&B in the 1960s, mm. who are having the door shut on them because of their race, Prince knows how the music industry is actually operating here. And he understands you put me in the black department. That means it'll only get to a certain segment. And so Prince is very knowledgeable about this. And so that's one directive that he tells them. He's very self-assured and very self-aware of what's happening. <laughs> right. And then the second thing that happens is that Warner Brothers proposes, I'm not a musician at all. Yeah. Um, but if I were, and Warner Brothers came to me and said, we want to propose that Maurice White of Earth, Wind & Fire write and produce on your first album, on your debut, I would be, yes, sign me up. This musical genius of Maurice White. Right. And Prince says, thank you. I have a lot of love and affection and respect for Earth, Wind & Fire and folks like Maurice White, but I want to do this on my own. You have to be really self-assured of yourself. You have to be really confident in yourself <laughs> to say no to that, right? Because this is Earth, Wind & Fire in the 1970s. Yeah. This yeah. is Pinnacle. And you have this offer and you say, no, I want my music on my terms. Yeah. I want full creative control. Mm. And from the first album moving forward, having creative control was so important to Prince. We see it pop up time and time again. We obviously see it in the 1990s with his battles with Warner Brothers, but self-control of his own music becomes a really important part of his artistry and very much his legacy that he sets the tone with his first album. It's really interesting because the comp that kept coming up for me, and obviously this person is radioactively controversial at this point, but he reminds me so much of Kanye in this way. It's clear to me that Kanye modeled his own moves through the music industry after Prince in this specific way. Another person that is the architect of his own vision, the architect of his own sound, someone that also was refusing to be placed inside of genre boxes, somebody that had this incredibly self-possessed vision for what he could do and how he could innovate and told that to people before anybody believed or wanted to pay attention to it. I kept thinking about Kanye just as the artist from my childhood or the artist from my generation that I feel like most clearly followed in Prince's footsteps. Kanye's brash self-confidence and also vision and architecture and one-man band approach to his music really feels like a modern corollary to this in some ways. Yeah, I think about as well, this is pre-Kanye and even pre-Prince, but this is a kind of legacy, but I think about actually Stevie Wonder again, mm. because that was really important for Stevie's own battle with Motown to have sort of creative control. That was also important for folks like Marvin Gaye. Prince is, again, very knowledgeable about his predecessors 
predecessors and the battles that they had to face and saying, what happened to them? I don't want to happen to me. And I don't want that to happen to others after me. Right. Especially as a black musician and black man. Right. You talk to folks like Beyonce, you not talk to folks like Beyonce, but you read interviews <laughs> with folks like Beyonce. I often do. <laughs> Dr. I like to text her yes. to see how her day is going. Yeah. Yes. But <laughs> folks like Beyonce have said in interviews that Prince would give her advice on the music industry, right? So Prince took on these battles and made sure that he paid it forward. Yeah. He was very much aware of his own kind of position here and his own kind of influence. Right. And what he was bringing to the table as an innovator and what he had on offer. It feels like he had a real sense of that. So he makes this demo. He gets the Warner Brothers deal. He obviously convinces them to let himself produce his 1978 debut record for you. Can you talk a little bit about the process of making that record? And if we have this as our first document of what Prince music actually sounds like, I mean, I know he's made music before this, but the first official document of Prince's music, what is this record like? What does it sound like? As cliche as it's going to sound, this record sounds like nothing you've heard before. Mm -hmm. I say that because if you press play and listen to the first track, you kind of are like, what am I about <laughs> to get myself into, right? It's a completely just vocal track, mm. layered vocals, harmonies all over the place, mm -hmm. beautiful, angelic, but you have no idea what is about to happen next. Rising vocals that take you up really high mm. and you're like, oh my God, am I gonna fall? Am I gonna continue to go out? Like what, <laughs> he holds you in suspense from Jump with that album. And it's just really, really fascinating to me when I think about that first album, because it's hard to figure out where he's gonna go next with each song. And that could be a blessing and a curse. And I think it helped him in some ways, but I think a lot of people, because they are listening to it and they hear so many different kinds of genres, they're like, what is happening here, right? You have this opening that's really angelic. And then it's like, now we're gonna kind of go into funk. And then we're going to have this ballad. And there was a lot of twists and turns. Mm. And that's what makes it really difficult to actually really sort of describe. You hear influences of things. You hear funk, obviously. You hear disco as well. You hear rock influences as well. I think Prince wanted this album to be the best showcase of everything that he can do. Right. And I think that actually might be the best description. It's an album that showcases what Prince can do. So when we have the opening track and these really, really amazing vocals and these harmonies, you're like, well, okay, he can really sing. Cool. And then you kind of get to the other tracks and you're like, oh, he can really play every instrument. There are a number of just sort of dance breaks, instrumentals where Prince is going on solos and Prince is doing this all by himself. He's playing every instrument. Right.
which is so crazy. <laughs> right? It's really bananas when you listen to those kinds of breaks and you're like, okay, he's playing all of this on his own. And this is really incredible. And so you hear the kind of disco influence because it's still 1978. And so you still have that going on. Right. And so it's this interesting record for me that is Prince saying, here's what I can do. And here's everything that I can do. I can sing really well. I can play really well. Those kinds of things are really front and center. I think for audiences, it became a little bit difficult to say, all right, what's your POV though? Right. It's great. You are virtuoso, but what's really your point of view here? And I think that was perhaps a misstep, but I will also say this. If your misstep is for you, you've done a great job. <laughs> it's a really, really enjoyable album. I mean, I had never listened to this record before. I mean, I wouldn't characterize this as a breakthrough. I think this record, as we're going to talk about, doesn't make a gigantic commercial impact, right. but it's fascinating as a jumping off point in many ways. One thing that was coming across to me and becomes a very defining element of early Prince's music is the singing in the falsetto and the way that sexual innuendo insinuates itself into everything he does, whether he wants it to or not, is such a defining element of Prince's music. It's so loaded with sex, <laughs> get every turn in sexuality. In the next few records, he starts to really utilize that and weaponize that and create controversy with that and challenge people with that and use that as a real tool in his arsenal. Here, I just sort of feel like it's a power that he doesn't even quite have full control over. It's just there in every corner of this music. This purring, quivering sexuality that sort of infects every corner of his music and is incredibly arresting. I mean, you're listening to him sing and you're like, is he whispering in my ear? Is he coming on to me? There's just this feeling of all-consuming sexuality. The most impactful song is the single Soft and Wet. What is Soft and Wet like and why is that song the first thing that connects for Prince or has some success on R&B radio? Can you just talk a little bit about Soft and Wet? So Soft and Wet is really interesting because Soft and Wet is a part of the original demo that Prince and Chris Moon worked on together. It becomes the first single from the album. The album comes out in 1978 and yet it had been worked on and worked through between 1976, 1977. But it works in part because it's hugely danceable and it's catchy. Yeah. You start to kind of just sing soft and wet, not really paying attention to the lyrics. <laughs> Prince's voice is so high and so light on that song. You're just kind of bopping around, right? You're not really paying attention mm. a little bit. <laughs> and then you start singing soft and wet, soft and wet. And then you're like, oh, wait, what is this song actually about? And so then you end up with a hugely sexual song. Yeah. <laughs>
if we're thinking about late 1970s and we're thinking about dance clubs and discos, this is a song that completely fit in here. Yeah. It's hugely danceable. It's really funky. It's sexual. It's hitting all the things that you want. Yes. And Chris Moon had talked about that when he and Prince were working on it, it's one of those things where they were like, this is going to be the breakout song. So they knew a couple of years prior that that was going to be a song that they wanted to make sure was going to be a song that people would love. Right. You know, it has some of the elements that I think come to define Prince's vibe. I mean, it's halfway between funk and electronic music. It has a ton of innuendo and sexual provocations in it and sort of titillations in it. Baby, can you stand the pain? <laughs> yes, right? <laughs> All of that kind of stuff. The other things that seemed important to me thinking about the falsetto is, you know, there is this history of Black men singing in falsetto as a means of kind of feminizing themselves and making themselves feel more accessible for white audiences as a Black male. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. We did an episode on Little Richard recently, and our guest Jason King was talking about this a lot. Do you think that that was on Prince's mind here? Because it is true that as we move through these early records, he moves out of that. But in this early music, he sings a lot in the falsetto, which I thought was very interesting because it conveys sexuality, obviously, and it conveys sexual ecstasy, but it also kind of androgenizes him in an interesting way. Prince's decision to remain in falsetto throughout the entire album is, I think, really interesting. Yeah. It allows audiences to hear different kinds of things and to have different sets of experiences. Mm. There's a way that in, let's say, a ballad like So Blue, the falsetto relays a kind of vulnerability. But then on a song like Soft and Wet, there is no vulnerability happening there. No. But it's a curious kind of thing that's happening. Up front, very direct, soft and wet. You kind of know what it's about, kind of not. But then you have the falsetto that's like, these things are not supposed to go together. Mm. And that becomes something for Prince's career as well. These playing with sort of binaries that I think becomes really important and strategic for Prince's artistry is like, well, what if we take something that's very frank and upfront and have a voice that's not doing that? Interesting. I definitely, agree with what Jason's saying when he's talking about Little Richard and others and softening themselves in terms of audiences. Mm -hmm. That I think can happen. But I think that there's also a way that Prince wants to relay that there are multiple ways that we might produce music that is funky and in your face and yet can have a different vocal register. Right. Something like Soft and Wet, especially with the lyrics, you read them again, frank and up front, but then the use of falsetto, there's some sweetness to it. That's not not tied to romance in the way of folks like Marvin Gaye. Usually there's also, especially in this moment in the 1970s with falsetto, with Marvin Gaye, with the stylistics, with the spinners, men in falsetto have a more romantic appeal. And so soft and wet becomes like, wait, huh? Given the context of this period in the late 1970s, yeah. that might not actually work. I think it could work, especially in folks like Little Richard in the 1950s and early 1960s. But I think when we get to this late period in the 1970s, it's like, no, right? We've already established that if you are a Black man who's singing about sex or singing about making love, your falsetto is supposed to be somewhat romantic. And soft and wet is like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Prince is not doing that. So there's a way that Prince is kind of drawing on this history of black male musicians and singers using falsetto, but turning it on its head. Well, let's do it in relation to funk. Let's do it in relation to disco in a way that becomes really interesting that puts him on par, even though, again, it doesn't sound the same. It's a different kind of falsetto. But I think about folks like Sylvester. Yeah, totally.
disco and falsetto, dance music and falsetto from someone who's black. We have these kind of comparisons. And obviously someone like Sylvester is also playing with gender here. Yeah. So I don't know if Prince was in conversation on purpose with someone like Sylvester. When I listen to songs like Soft and Wet, when I listen to this album, I think about the disco influences and I think about the presence of someone like Prince and someone like Sylvester who are both singing in falsetto and both playing with gender in really, really important ways. Yeah, and I think it's interesting what you're saying about Prince's falsetto in particular because I think it can be utilized to convey vulnerability and to convey intimacy, but it also can come across as extremely self-possessed, confident, and almost, for lack of a better word, top energy <laughs> coming across <laughs> because Prince can often sing in falsetto in a way where you still feel like he is utterly in control of the sexual dynamic that he's sometimes trying to convey through the quivering falsetto. Yeah. That was just striking me through this record as kind of a really important baseline understanding of Prince's power as an on-record persona as kind of twisting ideas of what we might expect from what we're hearing and conveying multitudes in something that might seem simple. So he's singing in falsetto. It's a version of singing we're familiar with and yet the way that it comes across feels very singular and different, as you were pointing out, to the way that we might normally hear falsetto utilized in music in this way. Yeah, definitely. He's breaking expectations. He becomes, to actually use your own framing here, yeah. Prince becomes a femme top vocalist <laughs> on an album like this, yeah. right? You're like, this is not supposed to happen, and here we are. Right, and throughout his discography in a lot of instances. Exactly. I would say the thing that is missing on this music for me that kind of comes into form through these next few records one thing about Prince is he has an immaculate and increasingly honed sense of how to strike the sweet spot of pop center to give you the pleasure and familiarity that hip pop music gives you and a sense of true operatic bizarreness. I mean, yes. Prince's best music and most popular music is, I think, some of the best examples in pop history of how pop can be at once this familiar and comforting and obvious referential force and be something that is bizarre and strange. When I think about Dirty Mind and Controversy in 1999, I think those records are some of the best examples in pop history of how to walk that tightrope. And for me, this record is not quite on the scale of the operatic bizarre factor. I think he's still coming into the self-confidence that he will possess in the next couple of records where he is able to really push buttons at the same time as making music that's super catchy and familiar, but yet strange and different. Does that track for you? It definitely does. And there are two things that I'll say about that. One is actually the fact that Prince spent so much time on For You, more time than he did on the three albums that came after. Yeah. And there's a way that I think Prince perhaps really overthought this album for reasons that make sense. Of course. It's the first album. It's the introduction to the world. He spent so much time and a lot of money, right? He overspent the budget on this album. Mm. And I think that he overthought it. He really changed course with the following albums. And for the rest of his career, I think he was like, all right, I don't need to be so much in my head with this. Yeah. And then I think the other thing when I talked about it becomes an album about here's really everything that I can do. Yeah, a showcase. A showcase where it's just like you'll hear him playing everything so masterfully and singing so masterfully, but it's not actually coming together in a kind of cohesive and coherent way. Yeah. You're listening, you're paying attention to the vocals and like, well, the vocals are really great, but you'll hear him on certain verses where he's harmonizing the entire verse, not just certain phrases, but the entire verse would just be in harmony. Yeah. He would be layering and stacking his vocals. You don't need to do all that. Right. Totally. And you don't have to do these instrumentals all the time. Right. So there's a way that I think in showcasing his virtuosity. Yeah. I think the songwriting gets buried. 
I think about this album and I often think about how I don't personally think too much about the lyrics. Yes, it's true. Right. I'm so focused on his voice and so focused on the instrumentation that the lyrics have completely taken a backseat. Yes, right. He changes course moving forward from that. Yeah. And so I think for him, he's like, all right, cool. I've now shown the world we listen to everything that I can do. Now it's time to move on to something else. Yes, 100%. Are you enjoying this episode? Well, if you made it this far, of course you are. But there's actually more to Pop Pantheon than you're hearing here on the main feed. Over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, we're now offering at least three bonus episodes of the show per month. We're going long on new albums like Olivia Rodrigo's Guts, Doja Cat's Scarlet, and Kim Petras's Feed the Beast, digging in on all the most talked about new singles of the month on our new music speed rounds, and of course, deep diving on classic albums like Robin's Honey, Mariah Carey's Glitter, Janet's The Velvet Rope, and so much more with all your favorite pop pantheon guests all this plus you'll get access to our discord channel input on future episodes of the show and so much more so sign up at the icon tier now at patreon.com slash pop pantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode so this record is not a massive success as we talked about it tops out at 138 on the albums chart soft and wet just cracks the hot 100 it gets to number 92 it's a bigger hit on r&b it becomes a number 12 hit but the record is not a massive breakthrough success and as you mentioned he follows it up extremely quickly the next year in 1979 and this becomes a pattern where prince starts to release an album every single year moving forward so he comes out with his self-titled record in 1979 which is led off by his first true hit, which is I Want to Be Your Lover. It hits number 11 on the Hot 100. It becomes a number one R&B hit. How does Prince change his approach on this record? How is this music different? And maybe we can start with I Want to Be Your Lover. What is happening there? And why does that record provide an avenue for Prince to break through on a bigger level, do you think? One major difference between For You and the self-titled album is that I think it's a lot more danceable. Yeah. It's a lot more geared toward radio and dance clubs. I Want to Be Your Lover is just, you start from the beginning and it's like, this is a hit song. Yes. I'm not going to belabor you with a grandiose kind of opening. I'm going to get to this point. I'm going to do this. We're going to dance. And it's really guitar forward, but in a way that's very pop oriented, that's funk oriented. Disco oriented, which is up until this year, the driving force of pop music. Exactly. to use the language of, I guess today, I might've missed it. Maybe people aren't still using this, but he's fully locked in. Right. <laughs> and so he's like, all right, cool. I did the first album. I was kind of virtuosic in so many different ways. Let me concentrate all of these things into creating the perfect song. Yeah. And I Want to Be Your Lover is that perfect song, right? The instrumentation, the vocals, the lyrics, all are working side by side. They're working in beautiful ways here. And then you have the kind of double entendres that we hear in Soft and Wet. So there's yeah. a way that he notices that Soft and Wet does well on the soul charts. And so great. I have that. Let's now continue along the same vein. Yeah. But let's 
also make it more of a crossover sound. Yes. Let me move it even more into the disco frame. Right. Let me also really showcase the guitar. It's something that you can sing along to. The chorus is amazing. The kind of tongue in cheek about, I want to be the one that you come for. That's beautiful. <laughs> really, really smart stuff. I find it a fascinating document because it sort of lacks in some ways the way that Prince would create just such a singular Prince sounding song and yet have it be a pop hit at the same time. He was able to be his strange idiosyncratic and visionary musician self and yet craft extremely accessible pop hits. 1999, I think in particular, is the moment where that really, really comes into full bloom. This song, I think production-wise, it's incredibly well done, but it sounds very much in conversation with other music that's happening at the time in a way that obviously Prince is always Prince and always singular when you hear him, but you think about Cheryl Lynn's Got To Be Real or like mm -hmm. The Emotions, Best Of My Love when mm -hmm. I listen to this song. You know, there's other mm -hmm. disco hits of this moment that this song reminds me of in a way that, as I said at the top of the conversation, I think a lot of Prince's canonical music doesn't sound like anything but Prince. But yet, you have a lot of these elements of princeliness that are in the mix here and almost Trojan horsed into a song that feels incredibly accessible and familiar. Like, again, what you said, I want to be the only one that makes you come running. <laughs> Hilarious. Right. I want to be your mother and your sister too. The gender bending challenge to gender norms that becomes such an important part of his music. the playing of all the instruments, the electronic keyboard noise that plays on the bridge. There's elements here that singularize this to Prince, but it's an interesting way for him to have a breakthrough or maybe it speaks to his music business prowess in the sense that he was like, all right, I got to come up with a song that sounds accessible and that has a familiarity to it where I can shoehorn some of my ideas in here without shoving it in people's face in a way. And I think what's also important to add about not only this album, but that particular song is that if the first album is a statement about, I can play anything. Yeah. I want to be a lover is like, I can also write a hit song. I know how to play everything and I know how to write a hit song. And I think that is really, really important. And it's something that Prince would sometimes rely on in the sense of you would see this later on with albums like Diamonds and Pearls, where it's just this like, all right, you might be kind of weirded out by some of the previous albums right. here. Let me show you. I still know how to do this. Right. I might not want to do it, but let me show you that I can do it and I can still do it very well. Yeah, the balance between the iconoclasm and and then the desire to be the biggest star on earth because he did have ambitions. I mean, right. that was another thing I wanted to ask you about. I mean, I think this song makes it clear that Prince, at the same time as he wants total control and doesn't want to make any concessions and only does things his own way, also clearly has ambitions to be a superstar at this time. Oh, 100%. One, he's already locked into a contract. Right. But also, he is someone who's very much aware of his predecessors in Minneapolis, right? So he's earned this chance and he's fought for this and he's not going to let it go. Yeah. And he's very much saying, all right, this is how we're going to do this. I'm going to make sure that I have a hit album. This is what's going to happen because he goes on shows like American Bandstand and talks to Dick Clark and that weird interview that ends up happening there. That you made a couple of demonstration in records when you were a teenager. You're barely more than that now, are you? 19. 19. Well, you got another year to go before you graduate. How many years ago did you, did you make these demos and then uh, have offers on them? And why would you turn it down? Um, they wouldn't let me produce myself. You were 15 at the time. Yeah. Would they think you didn't know what you were doing? Don't know. 
Were you ever disappointed that you didn't let them do that to you? No. Did you produce, did somebody tell me you played every instrument on this album, is that correct? Maybe. No, that's it. You're very shy, modest. How many, how many instruments do you play? Mm. Thousands. Moments will be with you. Thousands? No. Literally, do you play all the instruments? Um, a lot. But he also gets his first music video there. So that becomes that kind of thing is that this puts a particular spotlight on him. With the first album, kind of did. But with this album, that becomes the first taste of crossover success. Yeah. And it becomes that mark where he's like, all right, I know what it takes to get to this level. And I will now make sure that I stay on this level. Yeah. I wonder in thinking about some of the other songs on this record, like Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad or any others that you want to highlight here, what are the themes that Prince deals with in his music and how would you describe his on record persona as it begins to crystallize here so this is another thing prince hits you with the first three songs they're all dances and that's great for me that's what i'm really into yeah we got one dance track a second one a third back to back to back But Sexy Dancer is great because it's so sparse. Prince is giving you space and then also is gonna give you sex. Yes. <laughs> There's true like panting sexual. Like, yes. <sighs> exactly. So you have the panting, which is fascinating to me because the panting echoes the panting on Soft and Wet. So there's mm. a portion in Soft and Wet where you hear Prince quietly pant. I think Prince picks it up again on a song like Sexy Dancer. It's like, let me expand this. Let me take it even farther and drops the falsetto for a little bit. Yes, right. I love that song because he strips it back and is still oozing sex and sexuality. Prince can showcase that he can be sexy, he can be sexual right. in multiple registers and multiple kinds of genres. Yeah. This becomes really, really key that he's like, no matter the situation, yeah. I'm going to be sexy <laughs> and you're going to want me. Right. And I love that. And as you were mentioning, I think Sexy Dancer is also interesting from a production standpoint and sort of uh, foreshadowing of something that he's going to return to, which is sort of like taking apart the pieces of other genres, picking them apart for pieces and then remaking them in a new mold or in a new way. He'll do this with funk a lot. A lot of his music on the upcoming records is sort of deconstructing elements of funk and then putting them through a computer and coming out with this minimalist recreation yeah. that sounds modern and yet also like what it's referencing. And that's part of the genius, I think, of the Prince production technique. And you can really hear that here because this almost sounds like he took a Nile Rodgers disco song or Lay Freak or something like that, stripped it for parts and gave it this spacious minimalism that allows the oozing sexual to find a venue or space to exist in a way. Exactly. And I think that one of the interesting things about dance music and especially disco, there is a lot of space. Yeah. But Prince is like, but we can have more. Right, right, right. When we think about the ways that For You was filled with so many different sounds and so many different instruments, to have a song like Sexy Dancer that is yeah. stripped down, but not stripped down into a ballad, but rather into a kind of sex-forward, sex-driven song. And dance song. And 
dance, it's hard to pull that off. So hard. You know, and I was also thinking about some of the interesting sort of gender bendery shit that starts to sort of pop up here on like a Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad. This song is all about a man expressing his vulnerability and then being shot down by a woman in some ways. And I thought that's just an interesting way for a man to portray himself on record. You don't often hear that. When we did episodes on Diana Ross like a year ago, I was thinking about how so many of those early Supreme songs are about, I want you, why don't you want me? Why are you treating me this way? I would do anything to make this work. Why do men treat me this way? Whatever. And in a way, I kind of feel Prince embodying a feminine perspective on relationships that challenges traditional ideas of ironclad masculinity that come across on a lot of songs of this period that struck me on a song like Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad, for instance. I fully agree with that. There is a way that a song like Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad, as you already said, is really challenging these sets of norms around masculinity right. at this point in time and moving forward into the 1980s and more, there's a vulnerability that's happening that there's a weird sort of juxtaposition. Again, this is how Prince is kind of playing and bucking these expectations yeah. because that kind of vulnerability, that kind of introspection is not supposed to happen on such a dance song. Right, right, right. We might expect that on a more stripped down ballad type thing, especially if you're going to sing in falsetto. Mm. But Prince is like, no, 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 no. Let's do this mm. vulnerable introspection, this kind of questioning, this kind of hurt, mm. but also on a dance record. So this is how Prince continues <laughs> to do this kind of play with expectations that this genre, this style of music is supposed to go with this thing. And Prince is like, it doesn't have to. Right. I love the lyric. I gave you all my love. I even gave you my body. Tell me, baby, ain't that enough? What more do you want me to do? I mean, these sound like lyrics that are often sung by women soul singers or R&B singers of this period in a way. It's just fascinating hearing those. I gave you my body coming from a straight man or whatever. I don't know how to characterize Prince's sexuality, but that whatever <laughs> for all intents and purposes. All right. So this record, as we said, has Prince's first big hit. It becomes a much more successful record than the debut. It peaks at number 22. It goes platinum in the United States. States, and he then comes back once again in a way that will become de rigueur for Prince in this period with his third record, Dirty Mind, in 1980. Now, this record, I think, is widely considered to be the calcification of who Prince is in public imagination. This is one of the most innovative records of the 1980s. In some, I read reviews contemporaneous and looking back on it that were sort of saying, this is this record that created the sound of the 1980s. This is, of course, the record where Prince's lewdness comes into full fruition. Can you talk to me a little bit about Dirty Mind? What is happening on this record and why this record is seen as a calcifying moment for Prince and I guess maybe for pop music more broadly in this period. This album, I will say in full disclosure, is my favorite Prince album. I would agree. I could... <laughs> talk for hours about this album. Yeah. Dirty Mind, I tend to make the argument that it is Prince's first concept album. Mm. That it is a particular album that is taking seriously the kinds of structures and strictures around sex and sexuality and engaging them in all its messiness. Mm. On practically every song, save for Party Up, there's something happening that's taboo. Yes. Whether it's oral sex, group sex, premarital sex. Incest. All the things that are deemed dirty, Prince is kind of thinking about engaging with. And in doing so, we see that in terms of the album cover, 
prince standing in front of bed springs. That's the cover. A prince who's barely wearing anything and bed springs are the backdrop. Mm. So it's telling you already that it is an album about sex. It's going to be an album about sexuality. It's an album that's going to be dealing with the things deemed in society as dirty and sexual politics around that. And I think that this is a brilliant way to think about that. All these sets of taboo things. What is the purpose of that, do you think, in Prince's mind? What is his goal with creating songs that are meant as provocations? It's meant as provocations, but I think it's meant in provocations to further push us into a more sexual realm. This is very much coming out of the disco demolition night of July 1979. Right. It's coming out of the silent majority push that is really starting to take full swing. Jerry Falwell, folks like that who are trying to really roll back a publicness around sex and sexuality. Pornography is seeping its way into television and it must be stopped. That's one of the things the Reverend Jerry Falwell said tonight to a room full of broadcasters. And now, all three networks on public airwaves, which belong to the people, not the presidents of the networks, nor the FCC, are beginning to do the same thing by dumping their cesspool into the living rooms of America. And so for Prince in 1980, after Steve Dahl and the Disco Demolition Night in 79 had deemed disco dead and whatever, and had made full-on attacks against Black folks, women, and queer and trans folks, that here's this album on full display that's saying, no, 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 we still need a place like Uptown. Mm. We still need a place where we won't actually have to conform to these sets of norms of gender and sexuality. There's a place called Uptown, this utopic place in Uptown where you can actually be who you wanna be. You can actually be black, you can be queer, you can do these things. This is really important for Prince to make that particular statement mm. on an album like this. I forgot to mention that this album is also dealing with sex work. There's a line in Dirty Mind that like, I'll give you some money to buy a dirty mind. That's actually an illusion of sex work. So Prince is taking very seriously these sets of taboos and these folks who are marginalized because of their sexual practices, sexuality, mm. and saying, let's have a conversation about this. Mm. Let's put this on full display. Let's not hide this. That's a really, really fascinating touch tone for me on a topical level, on a political level. But then I think on a musical level, what's also, I think, brilliant about this particular album is this is where we start to kind of hit that Prince really inching toward what we would call the Minneapolis sound. This mix of new wave and funk, mm -hmm. that's really, really happening. So you still have this post-punk and in some ways all-out funk kind of sound. Sisters is having that very seriously punk moment. Mm -hmm. The kind of riotous spirit 
is very much a part of this album that Prince is borrowing from punk, but giving that kind of new wave synth sound. Mm. New wave is a sort of more commercially viable, more stripped down, less distorted and noisy sound of punk. Mm. The Prince is kind of bringing new wave into this and saying new wave and funk are going to be really close buddies right now. And also still really not leave behind disco just yet as the song in terms of Dirty Mind is still owing some things to disco. Mm. And I'll also say this that I think is really important to talk about in terms of an album like Dirty Mind is in fact that mix of punk and new wave and funk and R&B is really important because Prince records Dirty Mind right after he gets off of tour with Rick James. Right. You know, it was a very contentious tour. We don't have enough time to talk about that. But one of the important parts that I personally believe is true, I have no evidence to back this up, but (laughs) I want to believe that it's true. So I am going to say it's true for me. Go ahead and speculate. Prince and Rick James came out at the same time. Their albums came out in 1978. Mm Mm-hmm. Rick's career, huge out the gate. Prince, not so much. But Rick James's branding of his music was, he called it punk funk. Mm. Sonically did it, not really, right? It didn't really blend punk and funk, but Rick saw it as a more aggressive, riotous, no-nonsense kind of funk. Mm. No holds bar kind of funk. We're going to take funk and move it all the way over. Sonically, though, it didn't borrow much from punk. And what's interesting for me about Dirty Mind, coming off this contentious tour, Prince and Rick really didn't like each other during and after that tour. I tend to want to believe that Dirty Mind, given the fact that it's so heavily involved in punk and new wave, and so bass heavy. This is a bass heavy, bass forward album, and bass is the center of funk. But for me, it becomes almost a jab at Rick. Like mm. you call yourself the king of punk funk. I'm gonna show you what punk funk actually is. Wow. I'm now the new king of punk funk. And let me show you what that actually sounds like. And it sounds like an album like Dirty Mind. And that is my personal belief that's happening there. And it's this critically acclaimed, really cohesive concept album that is just top to bottom, completely brilliant. It is. It's absolutely fascinating to listen to. And also, I think what you're describing, we could wrap this album up both on an aesthetic level and a thematic level, lyrical level, presentational level, is Prince defying all boxes, whether that be in a musical sense or in a societal norm, sexuality, gender sense. This record is throwing out the rule book in so many ways and thus creating a new rubric for the 1980s for pop music in the post-disco era. So as you mentioned, there is so many elements of disco. Of course, Dirty Mind is dealing with a four on the floor beat. There's elements of disco here. But what's so interesting is these songs, unlike the lush instrumentation of a disco song, these records are spare, minimalist. They almost sound like demos. They sound raw and unfinished in a certain way, but in an appealing, intentional way. And you have these records that are almost defying racial boxes. Like you think about a song like When You Were Mine reminds me more of almost like an Elvis Costello song than anything else. I mean, I can't imagine what it must have been like to have an artist like Prince, this black guy who I'm sure many wanted to pigeonhole into certain genres or 
seen a specific way come out and be like no i can operate in this post-punk jangly pop nodding record and then of course the challenging sexuality and lewdness of this record and i mean that in terms of both the sexual politics of it but also in terms of the gender politics of it i mean my jaw hit the floor numerous times the first time i listened to this record i mean sister in and of itself basically is about a 16 year old fucking his 32 year old sister in a way that somehow feels silly and funny at the same time it's a very strange sensation You of course have Head, which is almost in the style of a country song, like a storytelling <laughs> song about meeting a virgin on her wedding day. And then he says, I'll give you head till you're burning up, head till you get enough. I mean, it's truly the kind of stuff that would make you blush here, even in the post hip hop generation that we're all a part of. This music is extremely sexually challenging to sexual mores and forward and it's incredible. And then the sonic innovations, the way that these songs are made almost entirely on computers and yet feel so human at the same time. I'm with you. I feel like we could take this song by song and talk about each one, but this album is really, really fascinating to listen to and gets the job done in a mere 33 minutes or something like that, which is another impressive part of it. Is there anything else about Dirty Mind that you feel like is important or instructive to what a Prince song will be moving forward or who Prince is on record that calcifies here and will help us understand the rest of his discography? My two favorite songs on this album are Head and Party Up. Those are my two. I think Head is just a brilliantly written song, a brilliantly written story. Yeah. As you said, somewhat country-esque. Yeah. I'm going to tell this story about a virgin who's on her way to get married and we spot each other and immediately, okay, oral sex, sure. Yeah. And exchanging of Head is also really key here because that's not how this is supposed to go with a man singing about Head. Yeah. That's not how that's supposed to go. And yet this is what's happening. And there's a play with vocal registers as well. So Prince is taking the higher register and Lisa Coleman is taking the lower register, almost a kind of vocal fry, right? Right. It's a brilliantly produced song that's dealing with premarital sex, oral sex, all these things. It's dealing with adultery. Yeah. It's really, really brilliant. And then we end with Party Up. And Party Up, despite it not actually dealing with sex, still works in a particular way for me because what it does is it puts an explicit political stamp on the album, right? You might think, how is this album politically? But for me, it very much is given the context of what's happening in this moment in 1980. And so Prince might have thought, well, yeah, you might not think that this has anything to do with politics, but let me just give you a song like Party Up yeah. that is an anti-war, anti-militarism song that could have come out in the 1970s and late 1960s during Vietnam era that sonically and lyrically concludes the album by saying, this is political. So you might say, how is this tied? And Prince is like, I'm gonna show you, this is a political song. So I want you to think about this album as a political album. Thank you. 
I think it's a brilliant statement to end on that note. Yeah, even if the record is only dealing in elements of punk rock, the spirit of this is what punk is in a sense. This sort of challenge to authority, this challenge to norms, this middle finger to ideas of how we should behave. I mean, I just can't get over the gender and the way that he sort of takes that on directly in this music. I mean, he literally in Uptown, he sort of says, she said, are you gay? It kind of took me by surprise. I didn't know what to do. I just looked her in the eyes and I said, no, are you? Right. Fascinating, and I can only imagine how radical it must have been to hear this music in the year 1980. This is what I will say also about Uptown. For those who don't know, Uptown is actually a real neighborhood in Minneapolis. But at the time that this song is created and released, Uptown was also a very hippie and punk kind of neighborhood. Twin Tone Records, which became the record label for folks like The Replacements and Husker Du, mm -hmm. that record label was in Uptown. So there's a way that the punkness of the album and thinking about Uptown is having a kind of local conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And to go back to gender and sexuality, a song like When You Were Mine, it's not only the line about him sleeping between the two of us. Right. That's a kind of allusion to group sex, it's an allusion to bisexuality, it's an allusion to queerness. I This is really, really important to frame in the context of Prince's pushing buttons on sex and sexuality, mm. not letting the kind of rise of a new right yeah. overtake. Right. Because it's important to understand this is all happening on the backdrop of Reaganism. Exactly. So Prince is full on refusing that. And you would see that throughout much of his career and especially in the 1980s. And I think Dirty Mind really makes that important statement. Yeah. That's what's not going to happen, right? Prince is not going to conform to norms, conform to mores. He is just going to buck the system in all kinds of ways. Yes. And I think that that rings true because I also think 1981's controversy is almost like a companion piece to this record in many ways, a continuation of this album. Right. This record is taking on a more overtly socially conscious tilt to it. And the song is also directly interfacing with maybe the reaction to Dirty Mind about how Prince is controversial and the title track, Am I Black or White? Am I Straight or Gay? It's interesting also how he interfaces with the way the public perceives him and how as his public persona and public profile begins to build, he kind of wraps that public narrative into the music and uses that as continued provocations. Is there anything particular about controversy that you feel like is adding to what's happening on Dirty Mind if we can sort of take them as almost companion pieces in a way? Yeah, and I think a lot of people have made that kind of remark. Yeah. And this was part of the narrative that Dirty Mind was filled with demos that Prince put together. Yeah. And people read controversy as a more polished version. Yeah. It's like, what happened if we took the demos and polished them a little bit? And you see some connections. The covers are very similar in terms of the jacket. If we think about controversy as a more updated version, yeah. if Prince is almost naked on Dirty Mind, he's now covered up. He's now wearing the jacket on controversy. If Dirty Mind is in black and white, controversy is now filled in with color. 
it speaks to that narrative around controversy being a kind of continuation, continuing the conversation, and the ways in which a song like Uptown is about a kind of utopic space, and Prince is talking about a kind of utopic life on a song like Sexuality. Controversy and Dirty Mind both have these thumping intros and Let's Work and Party Up are very funk-driven songs. And of course, Jack You Off and Head are both sets of sexual practices where Prince is like, I'll jack you off. Yeah. Also on Head, I'll give you Head. The way that Prince is talking about sex on both of those songs are not, again, how we would expect a man to be talking about sex. Yes, right. I'm going to give you Head and I'm going to jack you off is not a thing that we would expect. All of these songs are kind of in conversation with one another. Yeah. But one of the things, as you already said, as things begin to crystallize, one of the things that I tend to talk about when I talk about controversy in my class is controversy, as much as people want to compare it to an album like Dirty Mind, one of the things that I think is different is that this is where we actually start to see what I call the central four tenets of Prince's artistry. Mm. That is Prince playing with politics in a very kind of explicit way. So we have it on a song like Annie Christian. We have it on a song like Ronnie Talk to Russia. Prince playing with politics becomes very central on this album in a way that hadn't prior. And also speaks to his product of the counterculture generation of his childhood in a way, rebringing back socially conscious rock and roll ethos to pop music in this period. Fundamentally, that's the first tenet. The second one is Prince playing with spirituality. Mm -hmm. We hear that obviously on controversy. We hear the use of the Lord's Prayer. This kind of way that spirituality is starting to pop up. Prince playing with multiple instruments and multiple genres. Mm. We've talked about that in terms of For You. We've talked about that in the self-titled and Dirty Mind. But we have it even more on display here. We have funk. We have pop. We have R&B. We have soul. We have rockabilly. So a song like Jack You Off is thinking through rockabilly, which Prince hadn't really dealt with before. Obviously, we still have the punk aesthetic happening as well. And then Prince playing with binaries, which we kind of talked about. We have an on controversy, you know, black or white, straight or gay, spirituality and sexuality. Prince playing with binaries in a very explicit way. Controversy, for me, becomes the album that defines the four essential tenets of Prince that become really definitive of his artistry. The play with politics, the play with spirituality, the play with multiple instruments and genres, and the play with binaries. Those four, which are on full display on the album, become the things that move Prince forward through all the album's throughout his 80s catalog and really even moving forward. Yeah, that's so fascinating and so true. And something that I felt hit me in a new way here is what Dr. Daphne Brooks in her retrospective review of this record referred to as sexual insurgency as protest and social reform. Yeah, There's a way in which on a song like Sexuality, Brooks, I just want to quote her again here, says, sexuality represents the utopia Prince has always pursued, a place that was for him often one and the same with heaven. Let your body be free, he implores on this throbbing manifesto, 
willing his listeners towards a queer future elsewhere. Prince makes liberal use of that signature vocal squeal, filthier and more sexually intimate than James Brown's scream, filled with lust, mischief, orgasmic delight, gasps, and exhalations. It is the sound of revelry in the body that gives way to a call to stand up everybody, while he talks of revolution and a new age revelation, and that we don't need no race. All we need is each other on the dance floor in the act of profoundly erotic coupling. I feel like such an important theme in Prince's music is the idea of sexual liberation as the be-all and end-all answer to like every single problem. And he does it not just in what he talks about, but in the way he allows his vocals and vocalizations to be these almost animalistic cries of sexuality that feel extremely impactful and moving and singular to him on sexuality. I mean, he essentially just screams and moans in this way that feels arresting and fascinating and very liberated in a way that takes the idea of sexual liberation of the 60s and takes it into some other completely like the most free and liberated version of humanity as represented through sexuality that you could ever have experienced. Or the outro of Doomy Baby, like an even better representation of just unbridled, just primal sexuality on record. So I think that this record also crystallizes the freedom with which Prince represents his sexuality and also the way that his worldview centers around the idea of sexuality and uninhibited sexuality as be all end all of all sort of social ills in a sense. Yeah, I mean, we can think about a scream as a form of release. Right. And I think that becomes really central on a song like sexuality and the release being an orgasm, but a release that allows you to break free. Yeah. And I think that's what's really important about Prince's screams. As Daphne Brooks has said, and I love Daphne's work is because the screen does so much. We think about Prince's scream as just kind of being an iconic gesture. Right. But I think that the scream is doing so many different things. It's a sexual scream that's kind of orgasmic, right. but it's also a release and freeing feeling. You want to scream. Scream because you're a fan. Scream because you're in such high emotions. And that can be an emotion of anger. Yeah. That can be very useful and political organizing, but it can be a scream of joy. A scream can do so much. But fundamentally for me, a scream is a vocalization of a release. Yeah. It is you inviting freedom into yourself and freedom into the world. And it's just this beautiful thing when I think about Prince's screams. Yes, on Do Me Baby, he literally says, I'm not gonna stop until war is over. It's like the sort of rapturous coming together of sex and then sort of liberation. I think also obviously coming out of the mouth of a black man. That's also such an important element of this, this free expression of humanity in its most wild and unbridled way in that vessel feels like such an important element of this period of Prince's artistry as well. Oh, of course. And I think this is very important to talk about the ways in which Prince, through dance music, is inviting us to be in community and build community with each other, mm. which is a necessary thing for survival. It's a necessary thing for liberation. 
And that is really important. That is another kind of legacy of Prince and something that Prince, I think, took very seriously within his music, within his artistry, within his own cultural and political vision. All right. So the thing about Dirty Mind and Controversy is while they are seen as some of Prince's innovative and most important works, they are not particularly humongous commercial successes. I wonder how you think Prince changes his approach coming into what I think many might consider to be his true pop superstar breakthrough, which is the last record we're going to talk about today, which is 1982's 1999. Can you talk about what Prince is changing in his approach here? What he might have wanted to go differently? What was the shift here? What was going on here that allowed 1999 to become the first blockbuster success of Prince's pop stardom? So I believe this is what I would say. Sure. I believe that Prince had actually created a plan to completely take over radio with this album. Yeah. And I say that because it's not just this album, but it's also with the Vanity Six album. And it's also with the What Time Is It album, which is the second album from the time. Mm -hmm. These side projects that Prince releases in succession in the fall of 1982. Right. And they're all engaged and filled with the Minneapolis sound, right? This album, the 1999 album for me, is the inauguration on full stage mm. of the Minneapolis sound. Do you want to just maybe give a little descriptor of what that is? Yeah. When we think about the Minneapolis sound, we have to think about a particular sound that is blending multiple kinds of genres, often pop, new wave, and funk. Mm -hmm. It's something that's often sonically sparse. Mm -hmm. It's often something that is synth heavy and machine drum driven. Prince is using the Oberheim synth here. An important hallmark of the Minneapolis sound is the use of synths as a replacement of horns. So rather mm. than having a horn section, the synths are going to replicate the horn sound. So it's not just using synthesizer as another kind of keyboard just to do keyboard things, but to actually think about as a replacement of the horn sound. And then this is when he brings in the Lindrum as well here. Right. And it's the use of drum machines instead of live or real drums that gives it this kind of robotic, mechanical, futuristic sound. that I think is really, really key when we talk about the Minneapolis sound. So those are some of the elements. There are others, sometimes, but not always, they kind of involve a choppy rhythm guitar. But for the most part, these blends of pop and new wave and funk, how it can be sonically sparse and synth heavy and drum machine driven, use of the Oberheim and the use of the Lynn drum, those become the musical characteristics of what we now call the Minneapolis sound that are on full display on 1999. Okay, two other things I want to put a pin in before we even get into this record. One is, I think we should take a moment to pause and just talk about Prince's physical presentation and how he looks. We're just getting into the music video era. Prince's music videos up to this point are basically just kind of filmed live performances of Prince shows, essentially. He hasn't yet gotten into making like music videos, I think, as we think about them today. But he's obviously this electric live performer. He's a virtuoso, as we said, on guitar and on numerous instruments. What does Prince look like? And I guess I want to use that question to also ask you, how big of a star is Prince heading into 1999? How is he thought of by the broader pop consuming public before he has this culturally saturating humongous breakthrough album where does prince sit in the cultural firmament prince has a very solid and a very strong black fan base right from for you moving forward so that is all there that is fully there critics because of dirty mind and because of controversy 
This is why there's a song that makes an allusion to critics on the album. Critics also love Prince, but Prince had not really continued the crossover that he had with the self-titled album. The fan base, the crossover appeal, the multiple audiences that Prince captures, he captures that with this album. Yes. Before 1999 comes out, Prince firmly has a Black audience, he firmly has the critics, but the crossover has yet to really be fully realized in an important way. It needs to be noted that a few weeks before the Controversy album comes out, Prince gets booed off stage, and booed is not even close to being the right word to describe it. He's one of the opening acts for the Rolling Stones for their Tattoo For You album. Mm -hmm. And they're throwing things at him and his band. They're screaming homophobic and racist slurs at him because they didn't think that a black man with black players should be an opening act for folks like the Rolling Stones. Mm. This helps frame things that's happening here. So Prince knows that this is the situation when it comes to audiences. This is the situation when it comes to radio and his own music. Mm -hmm. And so Prince is like, you know what? Let's just break down all the doors right now. Let's break them down with all these albums. Right. So when we have Prince doing music videos, MTV is in its infancy, but also MTV was really racist and not showing <laughs> Black acts. Yeah. And so through the actions of a lot of people like Prince, like Rick James, like David Bowie, we're pushing MTV to allow Black acts to be on the station. It becomes a way for audiences to see Prince for the first time. Yeah. What's really important about 1999, and I tend to frame 1999 as Prince's most important album in his 1980s catalog. Right. Not the most iconic, because I know it's Purple Rain. Yeah. <laughs> but for me, 1999 is the most important for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons is... This album becomes really the first time that we start to associate Prince with purple. Mm. Because we see him in the videos wearing purple. The cover of 1999 is purple. Of course, in the 1999 title song, The Sky is All Purple. Prince begins to brand himself through the color purple in a very explicit and serious way. We see him wearing purple on the cover of Controversy. I'm not going to act like that didn't happen. But the ways in which it's happening in 1999 are drastically different. Prince is very much assured of himself that he wants to create a massive album, a massive in all senses of the term, because 1999 is also a double album. So that's also really, really key here. But when we think about the music videos, Prince wearing purple, Prince having a band that has women in it, it has folks who are playing guitars. What's also interesting both about the 1999 sort of music video as well as the music video for Automatic, in both Automatic and 1999, Lisa Coleman and Jill Jones are playing the keyboard together in a very queer way. They're mm -hmm. very close, mm -hmm. they're leaning on with one another. <laughs> and so there's a way that we have also, for folks who were not aware of Dirty Mind, who were not aware of controversy, who were not aware of the ways that Prince is playing with gender and sexuality, mm -hmm. the music video becomes a signal to that. Yeah. And especially with Automatic, the end of Automatic that turns into this S&M kind of thing. They bring out a bed on stage and Lisa and Jill tie Prince to a bed <laughs> and then begin to whip him. Right? <laughs> this is what's happening in the music video yeah, of Automatic. Right. I've shown it to students. Students are very confused. They're like, what year was this? And I was like, 1982. Yeah. And they're like, really? And I was like, yes, this is what's happening 
1982. Yeah. And it's so amazing because again we have princess associations with purple it also gives us princes play with gender and sexuality on a visual level right so again if you didn't know or didn't have dirty mind or controversy but you had 1999 because it was a crossover hit then you're like oh my god oh shit here's a black man who's wearing kind of makeup who's wearing heels who's wearing purple yes and the roughly colonial nodding shirts. And then the hair. And now there are two women who are feeling each other up. Who are now there's maybe a threesome, an SM. <laughs> what is going on here? Literally. It's just this really, really incredible masterpiece for me. Yeah. It becomes so important for him to go back to the purple thing. We just had not had so many associations with purple. And this is why I think that Prince was really strategic, that he thought really seriously about this. Because he was like, all right, purple. Purple jacket, purple lyrics, the album cover is going to be purple. This is what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. Me and purple, that's going to be my thing. That's the marketing genius. And it worked. And the sense that pop music was moving towards a more 360 degree sort of operation that didn't just have to do with hit songs and hit albums, but had to do with how you were packaging this visually, what it was all going to look like, what the world of this could visually look like, and how you could take the music and represent it in visual forms. He's obviously a seminal music video generation artists and the group of them, whether you're talking about Michael, Madonna, him, George, Michael, whoever they are, began to have a sense of how to take pop stardom off of record and make it into something that's much more all-consuming. And I think that's where you're starting to see his prowess in this way on this record. Exactly. From beginning to end, it's just so brilliant. To start off with 1999, thinking about the synthesizers, thinking about the Lindrum and the roboticness of that, as the introduction, 1999 is just placing you in this Afrofuturist, sex positive, queer world. that is just not the world of really America at this time. We're 1982, we are fully in Reagan right now, right? We are full, right. completely. And this is a protest song against nuclear proliferation wrapped up as a party anthem, which is so genius, yeah. Right. <laughs> To go back to what I mentioned earlier about controversy and about Prince's artistry, Prince creating music to be in and build community with others. To dance in a kind of post-apocalyptic kind of, somehow it makes sense, somehow it fits. Well, I mean, life is just a party and parties weren't meant to last. What a genius encapsulation of that concept of how to connect the idea of partying and dancing to apocalypse. Right. If the world is going to go, we might as well come. Yeah. <laughs> That's the kind of thing, right? That's what ends up happening. 
Yeah, and what I love about this music and what maybe the title track represents about the record in general and maybe about some of the things that make Prince so genius is the record is so synthetic. I mean, as you mentioned, you have these big blaring synthetic keyboard noises, cascading Lindrum sounds, and everything sounds like it was made on a computer to some degree, and yet the music feels so funky, so alive. It's almost like a challenge to himself of how can I interact with the advancements of technology and still find humanity in the midst of these machines. That's what I sort of think about with this music so thoroughly. And a lot of this record is about the ills of technology. I mean, he talks about on something in the water does not compute. There's all of these railing against the ills of technological advancement. While this record at the same time is reveling in in celebration of technological advancement in musical form. So it's dealing with all those things. But what I love about a song like 1999 or Little Red Corvette or a lot of the canonical hits of this album, these are some of the most synthetically driven pop songs of all time. The brilliant utilization of machines in pop music, which is obviously going to inform the future of pop music moving forward, is mostly made on machines. And yet they feel so alive, so emotionally evocative, so community oriented, so human in their syntheticness that is kind of the duality that makes these albums so interesting to me and I think illustrates why Prince is such a genius. So there are two important things, I think, when we talk about this album and Prince's use of technology. One is on a cultural and political level, the ways in which Black folks historically in this country have been understood to be the kind of opposition of technological innovation. The racist belief around Black folks is primitive that for Prince as a Black person to be so technologically innovative is really resistant this racist trope that says that technology has no place for Blackness and Black people. And so Prince is really responding to that racist trope with very much this album, but also prior, right? Because he was still working with technology. But I think it's really important to talk about what it means on a culture and political level of someone like Prince as a Black man to be using technology in such an explicit way because of the ways in which Black folks were seen to be in opposition to technology, that we weren't smart enough to to use technology. We weren't smart enough to actually be a part of engineering. This goes even further into the 2000s with Prince and thinking about Black youth and coding. Mm. We see how Prince is very much aware of these racist tropes and traps. And so I think it's really important to think about that album in that frame. So that's the cultural and political way that I wanted to talk about technology in this album. And the second thing is a more sort of logistical thing is that really Prince is one of the earliest folks to actually use the Lindrum. So there's a predecessor, which is the LM1 that was created in like 1979, but the Lindrum comes out in 1982. 1999 comes out in 1982. Right. Prince is one of the first musicians to really take on this new drum machine and is playing with it, really thinking about all the things that he could do with this particular new kind of technology. And he's finding out it can do some incredible things. Delirious. Delirious. 
this is why for me 1999 also becomes so important in, in the creation of the Minneapolis sound is because in using the Lindrum machine that is brand new, Prince starts a precedent for other producers, other artists to take up this machine as well. It would be one thing if the Lindrum had been around for 30 years and here comes Prince sort of using it in new ways. It's another thing if the Lindrum just came out and here's Prince coming out with this album that's sounding like this and completely changing the sound of pop music in the 1980s. Prince knew, for me at least, that he had to make this work, right? He had to make 1999 work. He was already thinking about next stages of his career. We don't get Purple Rain without 1999 because he can't go to Warner Brothers and say, I want a movie. And they're going to be like, well... Sure, but no, because we need a broader fan base. Yeah. Okay, fine. 1999, got the fan base. Now I want my money for this movie. 1999 becomes so important because it can lay the foundation for the future for Prince in the 1980s. Yeah, and you know what that makes me think of is, you know, I think what this album really does brilliantly, at least on its singles, and of course there's other deep album tracks that I think still deal with pretty explicit sexuality where on Let's Pretend We're Married, he says, I want to fuck you so badly, it hurts so bad. Yeah. It's not exactly like he's taming the sexuality or the lewdness, but on the hits from this record, he does a really effective job of pivoting some of the more challenging sounds and themes and ideas that were represented on Dirty Mind and Controversy and shaping them in a way that can like be played on pop radio, dealing with the same themes or knowing that I think on some level he can convey that challenging sexuality without necessarily having to say the words. It was kind of a return in some ways to what he had learned on the early records, which is that no matter what Prince does or what he says or what he's singing about, that just kind of is there. It's part of his essence. You know, I think about that on a song like Little Red Corvette, which is a really interesting song, actually, when thinking about Prince as a challenger of sexual norms, because it's actually a song about not wanting casual sex and wanting to find something more long-term, which is also a sort of fascinating thing for like a Lothario to sing about. But it's so simmering with romantic lust and tension. The way that that echoing Lindrum can create that feeling, that sort of heart be, I don't know what you would even describe it, but you can sort of feel the lust in the air, mm -hmm. even on a song that is a very brilliantly written, beautiful mid-tempo pop ballad. It's a fascinating realization or utilization of the fact that he doesn't have to like necessarily say it explicitly to sort of have a song be sexually challenging or to have that lust forward feeling that a lot of the great Prince records do wrapped in the package of a broadly accessible radio pop song in a sense. Right. What also I think is important when we talk about 1999 or some of other Prince's music is how he can tap into something like Soft and Wet and just kind of be a little tongue in cheek with it. Perhaps use double entendres here like that kind of thing. Yeah. Of course, it's not a song about a car. Right. But like, you know, <laughs> if you're not paying attention, maybe. Maybe it's about a car. You know, it could be about a car. That's the kind of yeah. thing that's happening on that song. And it's obviously a brilliantly written song, not only in terms of the title, but we think about she had a pocket full of Trojans. Mm -hmm. Not going to actually say cons, but here we go. If you're in the know, then you know what's happening. Shrewd. Very shrewd. It's smart.
It's just how Prince was organizing this album, putting it all together. And then again, for me, the marketing strategy with the purple, but also the marketing strategy with really the Time second album and the Vanity Six debut album. Yeah, right. World building. That's just really brilliant world building because Prince was like, okay, fine. I'm going to come out with 1999 in October of 1982. Great. Cool. Before that, August. I'm going to drop the Vanity Six album, which filled with the Minneapolis sound, but it's going to be women owning their own sexuality mm. through the Minneapolis sound and talking explicitly about sex. And so that means I'm going to get a kind of broad-based sort of women's audience here, and especially women who might be really upset with what's happening with Reagan and the attacks on women's rights. So that's a particular kind of frame that's happening. And then a couple of weeks later, cool, August also of 1982, we're going to come up with a Time second album that's going to be using the Minneapolis sound as well. And it's also going to be dealing with sex and sexuality through a funk frame. So that means that I'm still making sure that I have the soul, R&B, and funk audience that I've always had. But they're going to get a taste of the Minneapolis mm. sound. And then in September, he drops 1999, the single, and then October, he drops the album. It's brilliant marketing to flood the market. It's a real onslaught. It's giving Taylor Swift. It's giving, <laughs> you know, Prince is ahead of the curve. Yeah. I'm going to flood the market with this sound. It's going to be inescapable. No matter where you are on your radio, you're going to hear actually the Minneapolis sound. You're going to hear me, even if my name isn't printed on it, like it was for the Vanity Six or the Time album, but you're going to know that this is me. This is my sound. And then other people started to adopt it, right? So even a song like Little Red Corvette, Stevie Nicks, she gets inspired listening to this song and then writes Stand Back. That becomes a hit song, obviously, for her. But it's a song that's inspired by the Minneapolis sound. It's a song that gets inspired by Prince. And so this is how Prince for me in 1999 becomes so important because this is how he starts to influence and shape the whole landscape of 1980s music. Wow, it's so fascinating and so genius. It's almost like he willed it into existence or just through force of his sheer talent and shrewdness was able to just captivate and impose his vision in a way that was obviously one of the most influential kind of moves in pop history. For sure. The last couple of things I just wanted to bring up about this record that I just thought were really interesting is, of course, we get a continued theme that I think is just incredibly important to Prince, which is sex as salvation or as the end of social injustice. You get that on Lady Cab Driver. And then it's something I just want to return to, which is something we talked about in the early work, which is the range of the voice just expands in multitudes here. I mean, 1999 is delivered in the lower register of his voice. And then, of course, one of my favorite songs on this record, International Lover, ranges from bass to falsetto, clipped moaning. Every register of his voice is in full effect here. Just wanna go 
I just thought that was interesting that he felt almost stuck a little bit in the falsetto in the early part, stayed there for whatever reasons made sense to him at that time. And there's a real sense of vocal liberation on this record that I think is really fascinating when I was looking back on it this time. This is also really important about what you just brought up is that if for you, the opening and the title song is showcasing the vocal acrobats of Prince, but they're all in this high register, what Prince does on 1999, he showcases everything that his voice can do. Mm -hmm. It's saying that I can do so many other kinds of things. Don't pigeonhole me, don't box me in because it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. And that's the other, I think, brilliant thing about 1999. This is the multiple kinds of genres. He's all over the place, but very much in a way that still all works together. Mm. It's clicked for him about how to make that work. We hear funk, we hear R&B, we hear rock, we hear against a rockabilly on a song like Delirious. And so there's a way that Prince is still engaging in multiple genres, but making them work in a particular kind of way. And it's further showcasing everything that he can do. Starting with For You Moving Forward, he's always showcasing everything that he can do. Mm. But this is like, let me show you everything I can do through this particular Minneapolis sound. And as the master at work, not as the aspiring prodigy, this record represents everything he had learned to this point, everything he had explored to this point, synthesized into the broadest pop spectacle he could possibly do as only someone who was mastering their talent could do at this particular moment. Exactly. This is what I think becomes really impressive for a lot of people who just weren't familiar with Prince. They're like, oh my God, he can play all these instruments, all these genres, do them all very well. And the writing is phenomenal. He knocked it out of the park with this. And I think he knew that he had to. He knew he had to and... It's such a genius way in which he could shoehorn all of these ideas, whether you're talking about production-wise, thematically, lyrically, presentationally, and yet the music never feels over-labored. It doesn't feel ponderous. They're so enjoyable as pop songs. That is the brilliant trick, I think, of a lot of great, ambitious pop music is how do you get all these ideas in there and yet have the music just be enjoyable and fun at the same time? And I think this record is a incredible manifestation of how to do that well. 1999 being, I guess, the perfect example of a song. It's like about all of these social issues about nuclear proliferation, all these ideas that you think could be kind of ponderous, and yet just works incredibly as a song to just shake your ass to. Only the greatest pop stars in the world can do that well. Yeah. So this record is a massive, massive breakthrough success for Prince. It sells 4 million copies in the United States. It produces numerous hit singles. It's really the record that I feel like establishes him as a pop superstar for many, many people. Can you just characterize as we sort of wrap this episode up and before we talk next week about his imperial phase and Purple Rain and all the things that are going to come after that, how big of a star is Prince after this record? How would you characterize where he sits in pop culture as he moves into this next period of his career and this very successful run through the next couple of years? What do you think is Prince's place in pop at this moment and what is he still looking to show people, do you think? Oh, that's a great question. It's astronomically high, right? His profile is higher than what it had ever been prior because he's also getting nominated for Grammys as well. So he's chart-topping success, critical success. All of these things are going in his favor. And again, when you have folks like Stevie Nicks who are writing songs that are inspired by your songs, when you have groups like Ready for the World and Oh Sheila who end up biting your songs, when you have Phil Collins later biting your songs, 
that tells you what kind of place you are, that tells you where you are in the landscape of the 1980s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if it weren't for that damn Michael Jackson and Thriller in 1982, yeah. <laughs> right? that becomes this other thing that like, right. okay, sure. Prince has this massive album and for me, completely shifts the sound of music. Mm -hmm. And then here comes Michael off the heels of this album, comes out with Thriller and just that becomes this huge thing as well. And so Prince and Michael are now occupying this really rare space within the 1980s, right? And so I think Prince had already been tooling around with a kind of movie idea, especially with 1999. He was thinking about this movie called The Second Coming. Yeah. And then he's also thinking about what would later become Purple Rain. Mm. He needs to make sure that he has the financing for that. He becomes a huge star after this so he can get the money for that. All of these things are really starting to happen. But I think he also needs to really cement the legacy. And I think Purple Rain is what actually tips the scales there. Right. Someone could make the argument. I'm not going to make the argument because I don't believe it. But the self-titled album in 1979 is a flash in the pan in terms of mm. commercial success. All right, he has it again with 1999, can he sustain it? Yeah. And so Purple Rain becomes it like, sure, yes. If you didn't think that he can get any higher, here he's coming now with this album, Yeah. right? And then for those in rock who still had their doubts about Prince as a rock god, as a rock legend, as a rock icon, mm. Purple Rain really shut people up with that. Right. So I think that there's a way that Prince understood that there might be one more step to go before I really can go in the complete opposite direction, which is exactly what he did with Around the World in a Day and the later albums. And so 1999 just sets him beautifully up. He's on the precipice in a sense. He's on the precipice, right. Yeah, he set himself up beautifully. And he knows that Purple Rain is going to be that next step. And that's just going to be the thing that's going to put him over the edge. And it did. All right. So my last question for you is, what is an underrated Prince song from this period? Maybe something we haven't really talked about yeah. that you would like to send the show out on. Something that you want people to hear that maybe wouldn't be one of the obvious songs. Okay. So I've thought a lot about this mm -hmm. and let's pretend we're married is the one that I'm going to say is a really important song that I think doesn't get enough love. Let's pretend we're married is a really culturally important song. Yeah. This is really a really serious way in the 1980s that we have the rhetoric, that we have the discourse around parental control of music and the express interest and really in fact demand that record labels have a warning label. Mm. I think when the PTA passes that, because it's inspired by Prince, Hipper Gore also sees that and takes it to a congressional level. Wow. And so this is why I think Let's Pretend We're Married is very much an underrated song. I also think it's lyrically and sonically brilliant, but I think culturally it also matters. Yes, yes. Everything you said and also just a great song that is a wonderful, prominent use of the Lindrum. Yes. So also an important moment in everything we've talked about so far. All right, so let's go out on Let's Pretend We're Married. Dr. Elliot Powell, thank you so, so, so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Louie. I've had a ton of fun and I love to talk about Prince. So like, this is the perfect day. Thank you. It was a treat for me to talk about Prince with someone like you. So thank you. Thank you again. Likewise. Thank you.
All right, well, there you have it. Part one of our Prince series in the can. I want to say thank you so much to the wonderful Dr. Elliot Powell for all of his insight, knowledge, wisdom, enthusiasm. What an incredible guest. I, of course, want to thank Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show happen every week. And honestly, primarily for this, I mean, I can't tell you how much work Russ has put into this series. So we got to thank Russ for that. Thank you so much to PJ Vernetti for his help editing this episode and for Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. Tune in next week for part two of our Prince series, which will cover Purple Rain through the Batman soundtrack. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. Me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Twitter and Instagram. Come to Gorgeous Gorgeous New York on September 16th and LA on September 29th. Come to Pop Pantheon Live, Britney's memoir, Music and Legacy on November 2nd at the Crawford Family Auditorium in Pasadena. And until we meet again next week, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.